Well, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 369, and our guest, once again, is Stuart from Monarch Taxidermy. Stuart joined us in the prior episode, and we chatted about taxidermy, as well as related topics, including how to get your animals transported, whether you're going to Alaska and trying to get things home, as I am here soon, or even if you just need to transfer something in the lower 48 to a taxidermist that may not be near to your home, or for a hunt where you are away from both your home and your taxidermist. In this part two episode with Stuart, we answer a lot more questions, including some of your listener questions. We get into tips for field care, caping, um, we get into reproductions of antlers and horns, what to do with velvet, how to choose between things like a full body and a shoulder mount, and much more. So this episode is jam-packed. Stuart is a wealth of knowledge, obviously has decades of experience, and it shows I am so grateful for the opportunity to have conversations like this in an area where I know next to nothing and learn from someone like Stuart. So I hope you, right along with me, are enjoying these conversations and learning as well. As always, guys, we appreciate hearing from you. If you have a question for us, you can send an email to podcast.exomountaingear.com. If you want to leave an audio message with a question, it's really easy to do. Just look for the link in the show description that says leave a message. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, it helps us tremendously if you can share it with a friend or leave a rating or review in whatever podcast app that you're using. Right now, let's dive into this conversation, part two with Stuart from Monarch Taxidermy. Well, Stuart, welcome back. It is uh, good to be chatting with you again today. Sounds good, Mark. Yeah, glad to be back. There, I, I've realized in speaking with you, and as we said in our first conversation, this was yes part informing the audience but at the same time tying this to my personal experience and i realized how much there is to consider in this whole process that um for me at least in the scenario of getting ready to go on this mountain goat hunt what all goes into that from a taxidermy perspective i feel like there's so much great information in our last conversation and still a lot of questions that we didn't answer both for myself and then i also reached out uh, to the audience to hear what questions they had so i'm excited to have a an opportunity to have a part two with you and get those additional questions answered. So thanks again for being willing to give us even more of your time here. Sounds good. So to pick up, I don't want to uh, recap too much of part one, but uh, if listeners are catching this conversation, again, this is part two of a conversation. So if you didn't catch the first episode, that's episode number 368. It should be the the podcast just before this one. Go back and check that out. We will... Uh, You'll hear more about Stuart, Monarch Taxidermy, uh, and a lot of great topics that we discussed. But let's pick up here. One of the places we left off, Stuart, was talking about getting your game, whatever that is, and kind of wherever you're hunting, to the taxidermist. Um, We talked about my scenario of Alaska and the services that you guys offer, or even shipping in the lower 48. We talked about that. So this is broad, but I just want to pick up the conversation here. If you're working with a taxidermist who's not local to you, you don't have the opportunity to visit with them necessarily in person. 
from your experience, what is helpful? How does that work? How does that relationship happen for someone who, like myself, especially in this scenario, would be a new client of yours? And you're just beginning to understand, okay, Mark's going on a mountain goat hunt. Uh, he's never hunted this species. He's never worked with us at Monarch. Like, what are the, what's the communication process look like for us in, in this scenario to work together? Sure. Um, so here, and I think I mentioned this last time too, but if you start branching out as a hunter and start doing traveling hunting, you need to develop a relationship with uh, the right pastor, something that fits with you, somebody that's qualified and capable um, of doing the work from all over, and then use them as a resource to talk about the hunt, ideally before you go on it, right? And a lot of people don't do that because taxidermy is like the afterthought, the second thing. But it really is important. And a lot of my clients now are, are somewhat, I don't know if we're really trained, but they, they understand it, it can be to their benefit to just give me a quick call and say, hey, Stuart, I'm going to go up to Alaska. Got this goat hunt planned in your case, for instance. And they can run down a list of questions. And I may say, hey, that's one for your outfitter to answer. This is one I can help you with. We can establish what our ideal route to get the trophy back. I can find out if they have some pose ideas ahead of time. I might offer some things for them to think about uh, in the field because there could be some skinning changes. There could be some, um, some things that they haven't considered that they want to think about before the actual animals on the ground. Um, and then this gives them the right mindset, you know, going into the hunt and they're, and they're going in with some idea of uh, how am I going to get this out? What's the routing going to be? Um, what are my options for mounting? You know, there's a lot of things we can do from shoulder to pedestal to life size, so on and so forth, half life size. Um, and even within the scope of, if I know, for instance, I've had a client that went to Mexico and he says, this sheep, this desert sheep needs to be laying down. I said, okay, I would like for you to make sure they skin this desert sheep ventrally, meaning a belly cut as opposed to a very common dorsal cut that a lot of sheep are cut on the field. Because in this case, um, and again, maybe another tax group would feel differently, but I believe that in the case of a short-haired laying down sheep, that belly cut is the way to go. And um, so these are discussions we could have. He knew what he wanted ahead of time. We talked about some things. And sure enough, when he shot the sheep, first thing the, the guy was going to do is do a dorsal cut on it dorsals down the back which is probably what most guys are familiar with yeah and ventral would be which is really the original cut which is the belly cut and that is the way that life-size you know skinning was done for decades before the dorsal cut became kind of in vogue but most of your african safaris um they still do the traditional ventral cut um I happen to like it in most cases, but um, a lot of guys aren't even trained, especially sheep guys aren't even trained doing it. And so, um, but if you think about it, a desert sheep from Mexico, very short hair. Why would you want the seam down the back and laying down an animal? You're looking directly at the seam. Why not put the seam in the belly where it's completely covered by the way the pose is and with the habitat? So there's just some things, not to say we could mount the sheep, if it was done dorsal, but these are just some little tips, some things that you can do to try to maximize you know, the quality of your experience and the quality of your mountain. It's, it's finished. Um, 
And you know, a lot of times your tax firms is just going to simply be able to point some things out that, that work for them. And they may be different from tax firms to tax firms. But having that initial conversation, uh, a quick phone call or text or an email before you go on a trip, I think is good. Um, for some of the international stuff, your tax firm should be able to provide you with some laminated shipping tags. In Alaska, we provide uh, tote tags for guys that so when they can label the outside of their, their, their duffel or their, their parcel that they ship. Um, so you might as well take advantage of that service. It's a free service. You know, I mean, no tax service, to my knowledge, charge for that information, that consulting. So why not take advantage of it? And um, I think it's worth a quick, you know, reach out. In this day of technology, it's pretty easy to, you know, be on a, you should be on a personal basis with your tax service. You know, most of my clients have my cell phone. A lot of them do with me for many, many years. They'll shoot me a quick text and say, hey, I'm doing this. <clears throat> don't forget this. And uh, it just helps. Yeah, that's very helpful. What are the, um, if, uh, you, I think you said many sheep guides are used to the dorsal cuts. So if, if a hunter's heading into this experience and not knowing maybe what their guide prefers or what his capabilities are from caping, what, what can the hunter know? So, and I say this, not that maybe even the hunter isn't going to do the caping, Right. But I envision scenarios where the hunter itself, it's their animal, right? And they've yep. communicated with you. That they've got a vested interest to make sure it's done right. And exactly. some, guides are, some guides are amazing skinners. They're, they're better than any taxidermist. They, you know, they're actually guys doing more of it in the field than a taxidermist ever would be. And then I've had other guides that really just simply didn't know. And uh, like I said in the, our first um, talk, I really think it behooves a, a hunter serious hunter we talked about training and shooting and gear and all that stuff and then guys just a lot of a lot of hunters just simply don't know how to care for an animal you know they don't know the first thing about field care and they can go all these other steps and they completely put all their trust in somebody else who may or may not be good and i've seen many unfortunate situations where um you know, great animals great experiences great hunts were really tarnished by poor field care. And as a, from speaking as a taxidermist, you know, it's terrible for, for me because we're really stuck with what we get. You know, that's all beyond our control. And, you know, human nature is nobody wants to take responsibility. And when, you, when that parcel arrives at the taxidermist, however that is, and it's shipped or, you know, hand-delivered or whatever it is, and you have an animal that's um, it is not been cared for in the, in the best way and then you start to have hair slip or you start to have issues um you know that can never really be fixed and really there's no reason so i encourage the hunters to, to, to practice what we talked about practice skinning animals caping animals on meat game or things that they're not going to mount if you're going to be doing a european practice caping it out you have nothing to lose um if you have a local tax service ask to sit in and watch them skin something um i'm putting out a new a website this year for my clients um, that will have some features on where to make the proper cuts. And so that's going to be a, a new feature on my website. Um, and for for me, and I'm sure there's other tax services that do the same thing, but my website now, uh, my new website, which should be launching later this fall, this winter, will be almost entirely based on um, providing tools for hunters to either a 
pick poses and help them see things that other people have done that they might like. And then starts a conversation about, oh, I like this pedestal. I like this life size. Anything I should know specific to make that not the best I can. And then the other thing is the skinning tutorials, the pricing information. That website will be a go-to for essentially a catalog and um, a bit of a step-by-step. And then it'll have links to the routing information. So a guy can access uh, that website at any time and from the field and get that information that'll be helpful to cut. It came up as we reached out to the audience to kind of get questions. Caping did come up a lot and there were some specific questions, but in general, you know, so many of the hunters out there are just looking for some tips or techniques or the flip side of that. What are the common mistakes? So I know that you've probably seen things you don't even know how it's been done. Like you've probably seen it all under the sun. Um, But in general, and this applies even especially to guys who maybe aren't on a guided hunt. Maybe they are doing the work themselves, but they're newer to it. What are, what are some of the common mistakes you see or where, where's the low hanging fruit that you can communicate in this podcast of like some tips and techniques to help guys do it better? First and foremost, field care is about getting a hide off a carcass as quickly as is feasible about getting that hide as cool as possible, as quickly as possible. Um, and finding some way to preserve it for the transportation phase. Um, and so without going into tremendous detail, something we could just verbally is if you just think about, okay, let's use an example of a do-it-yourself hunt, and we have a guy that is hunt, uh, has killed a deer, okay, a very common animal, any, any, any animal like a deer, elk, whatever it is, something like that. Um, if you know the basic steps to get a proper cape off the carcass. Um, that's something to be done in the field. Like I talked about last time, it minimizes the weight you're packing out. And by getting that cape off the throat, you cool that cape quickly. Knowing where to make the incisions, that's a big one. Um, that's something that my website will have, something that you can ask your personal taxidermist uh, where they want the cuts made. Um, knowing where to make the incisions. On a cape, for instance, you would start from between the horns, straight line down the back of the spine, past the withers, circumference cut around the rib cage, and then slip that hide completely off. If that's all a hunter can do, that's good, better. Um, If they can get the head completely off the skull, that's best. But if if somebody's really, truly not comfortable with it, they can skin up to the base of the jawline and simply remove the skull, have the atlas joint, and get the neck free from the head. Then you have at least a more modest package to carry out. The problem, and I think we, we hit on this before, with all of these antler game in the lower 48 is we have this chronic wasting problem that just keeps getting worse. So as far as transportation goes, um, you're not going to be able to ship interstate that intact skull. So... Uh, my best advice to a do-it-yourself hunter is, A, learn where to make the incisions for the amount you want. B, learn how to minimally cape the, the, the hide off the face of an animal. 
And, and the way to do that is to ask to sit in and watch and or practice on mounts on hot animals that you harvest that you're not going to mount. And you can kind of see how that experience goes. Once you learn to do that, that simple step, then you now have a cape or life size that is completely removed from the carcass. It can be rolled up. It can be frozen. Um, you know, a lot of times before on a hunt, if you have an elk, how do you cool a, a head that's still attached to antlers? It's, it's a huge parcel. You can't throw it in somebody's freezer at their house for the night. You can't put it in an ice box with some dry ice to cool, to, to freeze the cave. You're really limited if you have that. So by knowing how to get that hide off the carcass completely, you open yourself up to a world of possibilities for transportation, for avoiding legal issues of transportation. <clears throat> you know, even guys like Montana, we have people that come from North Dakota, Wisconsin, Minnesota to hunt all the time. And they drive out, they want to bring the meat home, but they either have the choice of leaving that animal at a tax service in Montana, which is great, but then they have to, they're not coming back for next year, they have to pay to ship that animal back to their home state. Um, and they just reduce their options as far as how to transport that animal. And as, uh, as taxidermists are aging out as a group, you may not find a taxidermist that's qualified where you're hunting to leave it with. And you can't always count on that anymore because a lot of guys, a lot of taxidermists are retiring and, and new taxidermists are not taking their place. So you can't guarantee that hunting in a remote location, there's going to be a taxidermist handy to drop that off to. Or are you going to want that taxidermist to actually do the work? Um, so again, it really, it really is in the hunter's best interest to learn some basic steps. And those steps will apply to almost any hunt you go on, and including your goat hunt. You know, being able to assist the guide, being able to supervise. Um, a lot of our clients are, um, you know, these are businessmen. These are professionals. These are guys who've made a little bit of money in life um, by being smart people. And um, they're the people who have the means to go on these guided hunts in many cases. And um, there's no reason why a person like that can't supervise or be trained to help and to know that, um, yeah, my guy, I can, I can tell the difference between the guy who's doing a good job and one who's not. And if I recognize that my guy is not doing a good job, then I know I need to step in because it's ultimately my animal. And at the end of the day, I tip this person and I go home and six months later, you know, a taxidermist tells me the cape was cut too short. And now I've got to try to replace a very valuable sheep hide or goat hide because, you know, and there's just no reason for it. Yeah. It's, um, we do as hunters have opportunities to practice. And honestly, that's something that I think most of us overlook, right? Like, Oh, I, I just now shot this trophy deer elk. I'm just now going on this mountain goat hunt, whatever. And it's like, now I want to learn more about caping things out. And it's like, how many animals have you processed in the field that you weren't going to mount, but that were an opportunity for you to practice on. So Absolutely. realizing that is uh, really important for sure. And I, I just think if everybody out there thinks about that and adds that part of the training to the training you're already doing um, as far as, like I said, physical training, mental training, gear training, shooting training, 
high prep training. Add that to be be a, a well-rounded hunter. And you don't have to be a, an international hunter, a wealthy hunter. You can just be somebody who just doing the hunts they can do. But that information is never wasted. That knowledge is never wasted. I cannot tell you how many times I've been so thankful that, you know, I have the knowledge myself. And and there's been so many times. And, and I will tell you, I've been on many hunts where um, once I recognize that the guy is fully capable, I'll let them do the job. You know, I might lend a helping hand or, you know, participate in some manner, but, um, you know, I, I'm paying for that service and, and I'm on vacation too, even though it's my line of work. Doesn't mean I necessarily want to do it, but I've had many instances where if, if I didn't know what I knew, I, I may not have a trophy to show for the hunt uh, as, as a result. So um, I just can't, I just can't emphasize that enough. And especially with this chronic wasting issue, it used to be that a guy could go and hunt out of state. When I started in taxidermy, I was based in Northern California and we had hunters that would travel to Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, and they would shoot deer and elk. And, you know, of course it's November, it's cool out. They would take that animal, leave me at the butcher typically in those places, or maybe they're quartered in, in game bags. And uh, the fully intact head, cape, antlers in the back of their truck. And they would drive, you know, nonstop 20 hours or something to, to, to Northern California or to Nevada. I've been there too, same thing. And basically dump it off with us. And it's on the verge of spoil, right? Because it's been maybe two days now. And, and if mm -hmm. it wasn't for some cool weather, it could have spoiled. Um, that's simply not legal now. That's not an option anymore. So what, what many of us are accustomed to from the, 80s and 90s and early 2000s is not an option today. And when you pair that with um, taxidermists uh, essentially going out of business or leaving the business in a lot of these small communities, you really compounds your problem, you know, as a traveling hunter. So something to think about. One question I had for a conversation last time, and I feel like we, we at least brought this up. I don't, think we quite did it justice or fully talked about the topic though and i'm not sure how um like how this comparison is going to work but it's an idea it's a comparison <laughs> um comparing taxidermy to rifles there are some rifle builders out there who are assemblers of components and parts and throw the label it's a custom rifle on that but then there's like this next level of truly custom rifle builders, meaning they can do custom work and they're not just taking parts and pieces and, and slapping them together, but they're, they're doing much more intricate custom machining to create the end product. In what ways does and doesn't that analogy work in the taxidermy world as we think of the idea of you know, taxidermist, pick a form, a pose out of the catalog, get that form, put it together versus doing truly custom work. Yeah. So that's actually a very good analogy, I think. Um, and I, and I, I suspect that taxidermy is not unlike, say, custom rifle building in that a truly custom shop for a rifle 
can also probably assemble a gun for you out of parts and pieces or create a one-of-a-kind rifle for you that nobody else has. And there's, to put that in perspective of taxidermy, I'll do this the best I can. You have probably the vast, and, and again, this just would be my opinion, the vast majority of taxidermists in the country are assemblers. Some are great assemblers, some are okay assemblers, some are really poor assemblers that really shouldn't be in business. Okay. And they're everything from, from one to 10 on the sliding scale of quality and professionalism and turnaround time and you name it. Okay. And the vast majority of those tax terms would be considered an assembler um, with minimal customization. Right. So, if, if, and there's degrees to that in terms of the types of animals that a taxidermist deals with. So as a, for instance, let's say you're a Midwest taxidermist and the game animals that are in your region, not just local, but let's say within a four, five hundred mile radius of you is mammals, is bears and white-tailed deer. That's the, that's the bulk of the country, right, frankly. Bears, white-tailed deer. So that taxidermist who's dealing primarily with that um, client base is valuing white tails, shoulder mounts usually, uh, maybe the occasional pedestal or something like that. And they're doing bears, maybe the occasional life size, but probably 80, 90% of those bears we've done is rucks. So in both of those cases, there's a plethora of white tail forms and all sizes and poses and um, geographical representation, right? So you can buy white tail lines that are tailored to Midwestern deer or northern deer or southern deer and their features are characteristic of the deer in those areas. And you can also buy black bear rug shells that are in a variety of sizes that work pretty well for most bears. So those taxidermists, by default, because the vast majority of the work they do is centered on those two species, um, you know, with a, with a smattering of a few other things, of course, um, really become assemblers of those. And because they can, and quite frankly, it makes financial sense for them to be assemblers, right? It's very hard. Taxidermy is already an expensive, you know, luxury item. When you start making it really custom, you can put in a lot of time in something, a lot of time. And so for most taxidermists, it's just not practical. And most taxidermists, again, are single people. And they are already behind in most cases. Um, most cases underpaid because they price themselves that way. And so they're always still like they're playing catch up. And so um, you are likely to get an assembled piece of tax firm in that situation. Now, if that's your local tax firm and you go on an African safari or you go on an Alaska hunt venture, and he probably or she is going to really be excited to get them out of your goat because they've never done one. Or maybe they did one 20 years ago. They like to have an opportunity. Um, that may not be the best choice for you. You know, maybe great for them, but it may not be the best choice for you. If that that particular outfit um, is largely going to be assembling your goat or your sheep or your moose too, because that's how their business is based. Um, now you have another tier of taxidermy, um, which would be our shop, for instance, that I would consider a custom shop. Not to say that we are not assemblers of some things. Um, because quite frankly, if I get a black bear rug or a 
white-tailed deer or mule deer and elk. Um, it's in all of our best interest to keep costs down, to try to mount something that is essentially an assemblage of parts, you know, with some artistic talent to tie those parts together. However, we have a huge portion of our work because we're doing species from all over the world where we have no choice but to be a custom shop. And when you're dealing with species that there's maybe no forms for, or a very small selection of forms, um, if you're gonna if you're gonna do that and do it well, you have to train yourself to be a, a custom a true custom shop. So for instance, a person um, and I've had museum accounts before where we mount on animals that are simply they're not even game animals. We can mount anything and mount it well. And so when you have that skill set, when that person, that traveling hunter, gets their goat or their sheep and they bring it to a shop that is um, that works at least part-time as a totally custom shop, then you have the benefit of all that experience, um, all the, the machinery, the, the knowledge base, the teamwork, a shop that has maybe five, ten employees to handle something really large and to be able to do it in a timely fashion. So your, your analogy is really spot on. You have assembling taxidermists, which is probably 80, 90% of what's out there. And they may consider custom shortening a face or plumping up a belly or uh, you know shortening a leg or something. That's, that's their version of custom. I can usually look at one of those taxidermists webpage or body of work, and I can almost go through their entire catalog and say, tell you what form they used. This form, this form, this form, this form. I can recognize all those forms. Now, if you go to a shop like mine or, or others that are similar to mine, you may be able to recognize some repetitiveness, some forms that you see other places that have been assembled. Um, sure. And because that choice may have been what was in the best interest of the hunter, right? I need this sheep laying down at the left turn. Well, there happens to be a great form out there that is doing just that. So you may see that form be used time and time again. And to the hunter, it's unique to him because it's only what he has in his home, right? But you may go to um, uh, to somebody else's house or to to a, to a sporting store and recognize that same, same pose again. So that's an assemblage. But um, you may also look at a website like mine and go, I've never seen any of these poses. And I have a lot of those taxidermists on that other end of the spectrum that will call me and say, hey, you know, my clients essentially used your website as a catalog and he's picked this pose, but I can't find the form anywhere. Where would you buy it? And I go, it's custom. It's made from scratch. Good luck. <laughs> and, um, and when you have animals in particular, like bears, that are like people, you know, and so a mature bear might be 500 pounds, 700 pounds, 1,000 pounds, 1,200 pounds, 1,400 pounds, depending on where it's killed and what its age is. And there may not be a form for what you want. So in that case, you almost would uh, really be doing yourself a disservice if you didn't go custom shopping. I think a good, like, maybe illustration of that is I was looking through some of the goats that you guys have mounted and... One in particular was uh, a life-size but upright and on a floor pedestal. And I kind of asked you like, hey, how how tall is this? Because I just it was actually in the background of another photo and I saw it and I, I was just kind of lost in perspective. And you're like, well, 
we can kind of make it whatever you want, right? Like when, when the taxidermist says that's the answer, like we can, it could be six feet tall. It could be 18 feet tall, right? That's probably an indication of the custom ability that you guys have to work and create something that's going to fit in a certain space or meet certain requirements. Well, and it's beyond just the pose of the animal. So you have another element to that, throw into the complications, throw into that mix. So when you start moving into life-size pieces, now you introduce the habitat portion of that piece of taxidermy. So for instance, you may have a taxidermist out there that is actually quite capable of doing very good quality technical taxidermy. And might even be fairly good at customizing forms to, to meet a unique pose. But now this life-size animal needs a habitat. And so is this taxidermist also skilled at creating a lifelike habitat? And so in the case that you just, that example you just made, the height of that goat is largely based on the size of the goat doesn't change so much. It's a goat it is. But the presentation in the home comes down to how the habitat is. And so a taxidermist shop like ours, we have a complete department dedicated to doing nothing but habitat five days a week. And guys that only do habitat for me. And we buy all the latest materials and stock all the latest foliages and um, have all the different paints and resins and supplies for it. So the problem you run into again by having the wrong taxidermist for the type of work you're looking for is if they don't do a lot of that, they said they might not have access to that. And so you'll see, I see a lot of times on social media mounts that are pretty good. And then they have a very unbelievable habitat. And the thing about habitat is, if you have an eye for it, you don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to be a biologist to recognize when your eye sees something that looks like where you've been. You know, a lay person can, may not know the technical aspects of a piece of taxidermy, but they can usually tell if a rock feels authentic to them. They can usually tell if grass or a tree or a bush feels authentic to them. We live in the environment all the time. And we may not see animals all the time, but we see habitat all the time. We see terrain all the time. And so a big part of my business is we do so much life size is developing those techniques. And I think we I have one of the best habitat departments in the country um, that we can recreate these scenes that tie in with a good piece of tax journey, create a great display. So it becomes more than the mount. So whereas a shoulder mount you might be perfectly in great hands to have an assembled um, piece of taxidermy, right? It's technically sound. It's no problem that it's on a form that was mass produced because that form is really, it is truly custom to that deer because there's so many sizes available. In the 70s, all deer were fairly custom because you only may have two or three sizes to choose from, so you had to do it. Now that work's been taken away. From the taxidermist, um, the sculptor's done that work. So you can have a totally custom look on a several piece. But when you break into life-size mounts, and if you have a cat or a bear or a sheep or a goat, now you have to not just look at the, the taxidermist mounting capabilities. You really need to look at their habitat capabilities. And then when you start talking about especially big animals, there's a logistical aspect to that. So is it structurally sound piece? Can the animal may, be made detachable if it's through your doorway? 
Can it be made in a weight that is manageable for you to deal with and hang? What are the, I think you started the, the, the conversation with, what are the, how do I get it shipped to me? Is this taxidermist capable of building a crate? We've all been to taxidermist shops that are so small. Like, where would a big brown bear be in this building? You know, because it's got to sit there and dry for a couple weeks. And if it's somewhere that, if that taxidermist lives where the humidity is high, he may sit there for a month just drying. Now he's got to work around it, push to the corner. And so a person like that may not be the best taxidermist for your big piece. Um, and once it's done, you may have to drive and go get it because they don't have the option to, they don't have the equipment to build a crate for that size. They only have a forklift. How do they lift this bear when it's done? So when you go to a shop like ours or other big shops like this, we have all that equipment. We have forklifts. We have map power. We have all those tools because we're dealing with those big animals on a daily basis. And so you do want to cater your pick of a taxidermist to the type of work that you're doing. And um, that kind of goes into that, that pre-hunt conversation we talked about. How do I get this home? And if I choose you, how, do you have ways to get it to me? And um, I will tell you that in taxidermy, um, we have multiple options. So we can do a crate and ship. If the animal is appropriate for crate and ship, um, all my clients that are live in Alaska get a, typically get a crate and ship. Hawaii gets a crate and ship. All my international clients get a crate and ship. So that's where we finish the piece. We build a crate that's appropriate for the piece and the distance it has to go. If it's international, we'll have to build the international specifications, which is another tier um, of knowledge base and, and paperwork um, for import, export, etc. Um, and that was work best for that. And then we, we will price out three common carriers and then we'll ship that. Um, we also use companies like Trophy Transport. So for instance, when you have a life-size, say, say a life-size goat, um, life-size brown hair, things like that, Trophy Transport is the best way to go, truly. Um, and I don't mind giving them a plug because by far the only company that runs fully licensed, DOT, um, insured, air ride, specialized trainers that don't hold anything else. Um, I've been using this company for the entire length of time I've been in business and even in prior businesses. Um, I have not had damage. And uh, all the trucks have lift gates and they use a two-driver team. So you get some assistance on the other end to get the piece off the truck and into your house. Um, now, companies like this don't hang or install, but they do help get it out of the weather. So whether that's into your home or to the garage, somewhere where you can have it be. Um, it's a very specialized shipping service. And, um, you know, prior to this big fuel hike, there's been some anomalies now that have changed the price. But um, prior to 2020, um, we can pretty much provide a flat fee ahead of time. And I can tell you, I can get a go, life-size goat now, complex goat now, anywhere in the lower 48, Florida, New England, California, Texas, Washington State, wherever you want, um, for about 800 bucks delivered. Um, when you compare that to a crate and ship, again, with this crazy cost of lumber that we've had, and that's going down a little bit, but um, you might be looking at $500 just for a crate, and then you have a common carrier. So that shipping from that tax service, that small tax service, doesn't know about company like Trophy Transport or doesn't have Trophy Transport on the route, you may end up paying less for the mountain but more for freight because they're just not, they just don't ship a lot. So they don't get those freight rates or know the companies to use for different types of mounts. Um, 
probably now with the cost of diesel, that same mount is going to be worth nine hundred dollars to, to to do. Um, but still, somewhere in that ballpark, anywhere in the lower forty-eight. Um, so, in the grand scheme of things, you know, expensive, but um, you're talking about custom transportation too. Um, and then for some clients uh, that are a are, are fairly local area, um, we I have a whole fleet of trailers, different size trailers. You know, starting a, a regular box van up to a thirty six foot you know gooseneck, and we'll do deliveries ourselves too when that's appropriate. And we also offer hanging service. And so, um, matter of fact, I've had three guys just fly to Missouri for three days just to do hanging um, for people. So we offer that service as well. And again, I'm sure other tax service companies do that, but you're not going to get that from that sole proprietor tax. You know, it's just not likely, you know. Um, if you went to go to work at your house for a day, that's a mountain you didn't get done for somebody else further behind. So I want to use, again, my scenario of this mountain goat hunt and have this conversation with you, but have it publicly as an example of, you know, options, considerations for the future or whoever's listening to this and whatever they may be hunting. If I were to come to you and say, Stuart, because this is pretty much the case, I'm completely ignorant. I already told you that in the first episode. I'm also not 100% sure what I want out of this goat. Um, to me, this is my personal opinion. I feel like life size does them justice in a way that nothing else does, but at a bare minimum, like, and I think I sent you a picture yesterday. I've seen some kind of like half size ish type stuff where you still have the front legs. You still get the, the hair and the idea for all that on a goat. Cause to me, that's part of their appeal. If I come to you without, um, without a spot in mind, and I know I've roughly mentioned some ideas to you, but if you were just to counsel me without me coming to you with details and knowing what I fully want and said, hey, I'm ignorant, I'm hunting mountain goat, what are some considerations on life size, on half size, on just the the big picture? Like, how would you counsel me at that very broad starting point? Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good one. So a goat, and a goat's a great animal because a goat is an animal that it's a good example because a goat is one of those animals that um, can be done many ways, and we do them many ways. So, just let's start with this. You can do a goat as a traditional shoulder mount, as a wall pedestal, as a floor mounted pedestal, as a half life size, as a life size, as a rug. So there's six different common mount methods. What was that a, last one, Stuart? I didn't hear it. A rug. A rug, okay. Yeah, R-U-G, a rug, like a bear rug. And um, now we don't do rugs with sheep or other animals, but a goat is one animal that actually we do some rugs. So there's six different options there, mount-wise. Now, if you're going into the field and a person truly is on the fence about what they want, or I have people say this all the time, depends on what I get, mm-hmm. right? So if this goat is, oh, I'll give you an example of my goat. I fully intended to do my goat. I had this vision of this really custom wall pedestal. And I was going to do something like one kind, you know, something for myself where I spend a crazy amount of time that would, I could never, no one would ever pay me to do for themselves. And I was going to do something really clever like that, right? And I, I get on the mountain. I have this phenomenal experience. 
and I shoot this boom and crop kept going, right? Just luck. And I look at this animal and I go, nope. I mean, I'm telling you for two years, I hadn't seen a plant in my mind since a wall pedestal. And when I laid my hands on it, when I looked at it, I went, I can't do it. It's got to be life size. No option. And so immediately I'm like, okay, what do I do? Yeah, my goat is killed on a tiny little spire of rock before it falls into the abyss, right? So now normally my personal preference is ventral skin. That's my personal preference. I like the belly cut. Um, other taxidermists will say, nope, I like the dorsal cut. For my personal preference, I like the ventral cut. And, but because of where he fell, we couldn't turn him over onto his belly to make the incisions or he would have fell off the cliff. So you talk about an instance where the beginning of the conversation I talked about the need for the hunter to have some knowledge base of field care. So my guide was a veteran guy. Matter of fact, this was his last goat hunt. Been the guy for 40 years plus. So I'm not doing this again. I'm, this is a good goat for me to end my career, my goat hunting career on, right? So we're on this little cliff face, me and him. And there's barely room for the two of us and the goat. So now I changed my mind from a wall pad, which would, I just would have a cape, to a life size. And I changed my preference from ventral cut, which I would have preferred in a perfect world, to I'm going to have to do it as a dorsal. And not only am I going to do it as a dorsal, I've got to do what I call a custom dorsal. Because for me to get this hide off the body, I actually have to do a dorsal cut with a connecting cut. This is going to be impossible for your listeners to understand. But basically, I had to pick them off like a pair of coveralls because I had to be able to roll the carcass essentially off the cliff in order to get the hide out from underneath it to pack it out. And so you have all these dynamics that you and I are talking about. I had a vision of what I want to do before I went. I changed it because of the experience I had and the quality of the animal I had on the fly. I had to adjust my, my preference for skinning to match the circumstances. I actually had to cape that goat off on the cliff. Um, this is something I wouldn't have done, but I actually caped his face off the skull so that I can put the hide with no horns in it. I put in a Kuyu game bag and threw it off the cliff. Now, if the horns would have been in there, there's a chance that the horns would have got broken, you know, with the hide. But I want my hide was perfect, and I wanted to keep it that way. So I was actually able to use my knowledge base, skin him off, throw the hide, you know, in a, in a bag that I was able to retrieve. Now I have just the skull and horns, which I didn't want them to get damaged, of course, because we knew this was a, a boon and crock and go. And that's the only thing we put in a pack to, to scale the cliff to get out, which for safety, that was really all we could do. And then the carcass, the hide, everything I had pushed off and retrieved later down at the bottom. But my horns stayed perfect because they went out of pack. Um, so my point in that is you have six choices with a goat. You may change, what, you know, you have a preconceived notion of what, um, and I think everybody should have a preconceived notion of what they, what they expect when they go into the field. I, I think I want a life size. I think I want a shoulder out. I think I want a pedestal. I think that's what's going to work for my house, right? Like we got to be practical too. Like these animals are big and not everybody has a game room designated that they can just put endless things in. So you have to be pragmatic about it, but you also be flexible in the moment. You may have an attention for life size, but maybe the goat falls off the cliff and gets so damaged, you go, well, I'm going to adjust my thought process here. Um, or you have the experience I had where 
it's so much better than you anticipated. It's so much, everything was so much more extra that I felt like what I had anticipated wouldn't do it justice. And so, um, what I would tell anybody, yourself included, the best way to do a goat is a ventral cut life size. Because with that incision, you can do any one of those six mounts after the fact. If you dorsal cut it, you can't do a rug. You eliminate the rug, which is okay. You know, I, I absolutely would never do a rug on this goat. Then a dorsal is fine. You can do all the other five pedestal, well pen, pedestal, um, shoulder mount, life size with a with dorsal cut. You would exclude the opportunity for a rug. You do the ventral, you can do any of the six. And then your taxidermist can adjust. They can cut the cape down. You know, they can cut the life size down to a cape. If you get home and say, you know what? I thought about it on the plane. It's going to be a shoulder mount. It's going to be a wall pet. And, and if you don't want to pay to tan the whole goat, you can, your taxidermist can then pare it down. But in the field, you've given yourself maximum decision-making opportunities for a later date. So that's what I would recommend somebody do. And quite frankly, unless the circumstances are dire and you just can't pack out, you know, a life-size skin, I'd recommend anybody that does a sheep, a goat, a bear, a cat, you know, any one of those animals, just just get that life-size animal out of the field. And then, then buy you some time to think about it. And quite frankly, if you're willing to spend the extra few hundred dollars for tanning, tanning time is long now. It's about six months. So, for instance, in your goat, you keep that out as a life size. And you might be thinking, because you sent me some pictures, pedestal, half life size, and I'm not sure. You just keep that goat out as a life size. For any of the ones you chose, you do dorsal or ventral. It doesn't matter. Okay. Um, while it's being tanned, you have an extra six months to think about it. And when it comes back from the tannery, you decide to do a half life size. The only thing we're out is the extra tan. The tanning difference between tanning the half or the whole, which mm -hmm. is a small price to pay for time. Right? Yeah. You're really buying time. Point. Right? You're buying time. Now you wouldn't do that with a deer, right? Most people are never going to mount a life size deer or elk or moose. It's just not. It's just not in cars. No reason to. So in that case, your decision is really just get a cape, right? Those are easy animals, right? We just I shoot a moose, if we shoulder mount, I'll take the cape. Um, the only decision on an animal like that is whether you can do a European mount or a shoulder or a pedestal. Pedestal, wall pet, and shoulder mount all use the same cape, same cut. So you don't have to think it through. It's either life size or it's a cape, right? Those two hides. So again, in the case of your goat, even if you're thinking pedestal, bring out the whole goat. Buy yourself that time. Right. And when it shows up at my facility, you know, we can say, now that you've had an extra few weeks to think about it and transit and all this, have you made up your mind 100%? Yes, I have. I want to do the half life size. Okay. We'll cut this down to half life size to save a few hundred bucks in tan. Um, or you say, I'm 85% sure I'm going to do half life size. And we just have the whole thing. Now you have an extra six, six months to think about it. Nothing worse. And making that decision in a, you know in the heat of the moment, and then having regret. You know you can always you can always cut it down. You can't put it back on. So in those animals, that's what I would recommend you do, and that's what I would recommend any of your listeners do. Is try to decide what you want. Have a preconceived notion because you may get into that predicament where if you thought about it, you know, and you know your pros and cons of your situation, 
and you end up with this goat, that's the thing about goats in particular. You may find yourself in a situation where it's a life or death battle. And sometimes packing out a life size in that life and death situation is all of a sudden not just so cut and dry. And so if you've already thought about what would my plan be, you know, would I be okay with a half? Would I be okay with a pedestal or a shoulder mount? And now knowing I'm standing on a 10,000 foot peak with snow coming down and night coming and uh, a rappel and who's going to pack this life size out and we're getting frostbite. Now we can maybe go to my plan B for the Cape for, for just general safety. And I'm going to be okay with it. So if you think about all those circumstances, um, you won't be so panicked in the moment making that critical decision. Uh, I tell it to my safari goers a lot. You know, safari is a case where, <laughs> and I love safari. We talked about this last time. I, I love safari. Um, but you may shoot animals, you, you know you're, you may know you're going to see, right? Not like North American hunt, right? Okay, I'm going for a goat. I want to see a goat. I have to think about this one animal, maybe two. Done. Africa, you know, this could be a 5, 10, 15, 20 animal safari. I may see things I never even, I didn't even know existed. And now the guy's going, what do you want? What do you want? How should we cut it? And I can't tell you how many times guys have cut zebras for rugs and they later on a lot of pedestals, you know, and then guys talk them into bringing back back skins and hooves and tails and all these extra parts. And they paid all this money and dip and package freight. And again, they go, what do I do with it? And I go, you know, this, this, or this, like, why am I really interested in that? So why do you spend all this money for nothing? Because I didn't think about it ahead of time. And so, um, you know, that pre-planning is huge. And then quite frankly, in your case with GOAT, um, once we have that high back, you know, we've got lots of time to, to look at all of our options and, and cater something. And when we talk about that customness, you know, you send me a picture of your house and say, look, here's my two choices. You know, I'm down to... Place A, you know, or place B. And you and I may talk and say, well, in place A, we can do a life size or a half or any of the above. In place B, we can't fit that. So then we can fine tune our decision based on that. And then, of course, there's cost factor, right? So you have the shoulder mount, which is going to be your least expensive option, and your life size, which is going to be your most expensive option. And everything else is going to fall somewhere in between that spectrum. So for some people, um, doing a modern life-size custom piece of taxidermy with habitat and art cabinetry, um, it's just not the cards financially. So then you can step down to these other mounts and still get something really nice, but be more budget-friendly. That's you know something that people need to take into consideration because it is a factor. That was such a helpful answer, Stuart, not only for me personally, but I know for listeners in the future that are going to find themselves in the field. Maybe they end up shooting something they didn't anticipate, or again, they had a plan, but it changed. And so the way you laid out all these options and then how to make decisions accordingly, but at the same time, realizing you don't have to make every decision in the moment. That's just such a, uh, such a helpful uh, bit of information. Well, you know, and here's the thing too. I think it helps that your tax premise is a hunter. Um, but if they're too much of a hunter, then they're not that working, right? So there's a lot of like But um, for me, you know, seeing this goat, um, and I've had this happen with several other trophies that I've harvested in my lifetime, where when that emotion hits you, and I, I think if it doesn't hit you, you're in the wrong, you have the wrong coffee. 
But when you when you walk up on that animal, and if you're moved to the point where you say, okay, this changes everything. Um, I harvested a brown bear in 2013. It was like life-changing to me. Like, I'm like, okay, I got to change the way I live because I don't want to be without this brown bear ever, right? So I had it on my house, built the game with me, all predicated on this experience. You have this experience that's like moved you. may not be the most practical thing I've ever done, but I have no, no regrets. And now I see this bear as part of my life now. And when I harvested that bear, it's like, this has to be a life size. You know, it's again, another one of those phenomenal, lucky Boone and Crockett, 10-foot, well-haired, just everything was perfect. 21-year-old bear was just, this bear needs the best. Like he has to have the best. The best I can provide for this bear is what he's going to get. And so, um, but I can tell you, you know, there's other times you get somebody say, boy, that's disappointing. You know, it's a good experience, but it was, the, the trophy was disappointing to me. And so I'm not going to invest everything in this trophy. So even though I have my heart set on this life size, this, it just doesn't meet the criteria for me to turn myself inside out to make that happen. And it happens all the time. You know, it sounds like Sophie's choice or something, but the reality is, you may be moved one way or the other to change your plan. But if you have that mindset, especially on the species I talked about, bear, goat, sheep, cat, take it life size. Give yourself some time to pause. Think it through. Um, worst case scenario, you're out a few hundred dollars extra. But man, when you've done that experience, to have those options is priceless. So good. Um, again, we've we've covered so much in this time already. Uh, if you have a few minutes, can we talk real quick about two things that came up in listener questions? One is reproduction of antlers and horns. Like again, we could use my goat as an example here, but just some information on that. And then the other one we can get to separately, but just so you know what's coming. Um, just some tips on preservation and care of velvet. These are these are good these are good questions and I do have a time because this is um, I don't know what it is now but I've been taxidermist for I think this is now year thirty three uh, I I cannot remember a time when re reproductions were so prevalent um, we reproduce a lot of trophies for people I don't do them in house I have a couple different companies one primarily that I like to use. Um, and we do all kinds, and it adds complexity, believe me, to the project. Um, the sheep is, it's big business now, the sheep business. A lot of people want to have the real horns and skull as a euro to be able to hold, to have, to show, to, I think there's some mental part of people that says, well, you know, when I get old and I eventually have to downsize where I'm living, I may have to let go of these mounts. You know, it's just not practical in my older years to keep these mounts. But this skull, I can pack around anywhere, right? I can keep this until I'm in the nursing home, right? I can keep this skull with me, part of me. So I get this drive for it. Um, so the most common thing we get is usually with sheep. Obviously, it's a high-value trophy. Um, most of the people who are hunting sheep have the means to pay for the replicas because they're not cheap. Um, the most common replica that we do for people scenario that we do is replica horns and a replica skull cap, meaning not only we replicated the horns themselves, but you'd actually made a taxidermy part of the skull, not the whole skull, that part of the skull that we use for the mount. 
Okay. The mouth gets the replica. Probably 75% of the time. The real horns and skull stay as a euro. They have the weight. They're the authentic trophy. They're made this way. Now, uh, I do have scenarios where people will say, well, I want my mount to be completely authentic to the animal. So I'm going to do real horns, real skin for mount. So the mount is whole. However, I'm going to use that replica skull cap with my real horns so that I have a real skull to put a replica set of horn sheaths on so that I have a 50% real euro and a 50% replicated euro. Okay, so that's another option. Or I have a case where um, guys want to give euros as gifts, tips to guides and outfitters, and or to have a copy in an office and another copy at home. So I just had Desert Sheep come in this, this week on Monday. And that particular hunter is doing two full replica skulls and replica horns. So completely plastic replicated sets. So he's doing the real euro for himself, a replica sheath for the mount, and two complete replica horns and skulls to give. He's got some serious money doing this. That's this a lot. Yeah. dollars, right? I mean, it's not like chunk change. Um, but but we're seeing now what. So I can facilitate all that for the clients. And what people have to understand is there's a lot of extra logistics that come in and there is some risk. Okay. So um, in a nutshell, what we do is uh, I charge, for instance, just as an example, whatever the replicating company charges. And I do this all on the up and up. They can see the invoices, whatever it is. I have 20% on it for me dealing with it. Because it's, it's some work. Um, because what we're doing sometimes is we get a, we get a sheet that we need to euro skull. We've got to pop those horns, boil out that skull. So it's clean enough to transport, put the pieces back together, box them, ship them to the replicator. They do their work. They ship it back. Then I take these replicas and attach them to these horns and this skull to that. Okay? So there's a lot of work that goes along. There's also some risks that people have to be aware of. It requires the taxidermist, me, to ship these places, okay? There's only a handful of replicators in the country that are good. And for the most part, the odds are you're not gonna have a replicator in your hometown, okay? So you're gonna have to ship your sheep horns and you have to be aware of that completely beyond my control. I gotta FedEx these things. I gotta, I gotta box them up in UPS and somewhere back and forth. And every time you do that, there is a minuscule amount of risk to loss, right? That happens. Um, so uh, you have the cost, and you have some risk, minimal, but risk. And um, people are doing it. Um, people are really doing it. Um, off the top of my head, I want to say somewhere in the neighborhood replication, 14 bucks an inch, something like that. It could be off a bit. It used to be about 10 and 12. I think I want to say somewhere at $14 an inch. So it, it, you could do the math yourself. You have a 160 inch RAM times 14. That'll give you the basic mold cost. That's what that mold's going to cost. And then every part you buy. So you have a mold, which is the actual silicone fiberglass shell that creates the, the that enables you to create the replica. And then each one they pour is called a part. And so that one mold, let's say you have a $2,000 mold. 
you can make as many parts with a reason as you want. And maybe those parts are four, five, six hundred bucks per. And you can make 10 of them if you wanted, you know. Um, they would need to know that because they may make them a little heavier duty for more parts being torn from it. But um, in general, that's what you can expect. Um, when we talk about, but as far as, okay, so before we leave that, so as far as the hunter is concerned, though, all of that happens kind of is, is my thing to deal with, right? So when they drop it off, the replicating really, doesn't change anything from your perspective, just your pocketbook. Um, it could increase the time of the mount. Normally, we're having the replicas done in that duration where the tanning is being done, right? So I can usually get the replicas done within the timetable that the tanning is. But I get guys that say, well, I need this rush. Um, my outfitter wants us at the show. Can you speed it up? Oh, by the way, I need three replicas made. Well, now you just <laughs> complicated your issue a little bit. Um, but all that can be done and it is being done. Um, and it's, it's more and more popular. And I suspect we're going to see more replicators pop up because it's becoming a bigger, bigger business, but there's some artistry there too. And some replicators, a lot of it comes down to how you paint those horns. And that is an art form. And uh, so you need somebody that's good. Otherwise you can spend a lot of money and not have what you get. Um, velvet is a different scenario. Okay. Um, velvet is kind of my nemesis. I'm not a fan of velvet. At my personal hunts, I personally avoid hunting when animals are in velvet. That's my personal preference. As of long-term tax terms, I do not like to hunt velvet. I'm not an archer, so I, I typically don't hunt in the times where velvet is a thing. But on my caribou hunts and things I've done where a lot of people end up with velvet, I have personally tailored all my hunts around velvet season, right, to go after. I love hard form, natural color, bone, right? That's my thing. I don't like, <clears throat> or I just want to prefer, my personal preference is not for real season, but we have a lot of creatures, we have a lot of people in the order. With velvet, depends on your circumstances. So I'll give this to you in a nutshell. If you are hunting deer locally, this is where we talked about that first time, have a relationship with that local tax service, right? If you do a lot of local hunting, where you're driving, you know, maybe it's a day drive or whatever, half day drive. If you do a lot of that every year, you should have a relationship with local tax terms. You need that local tax terms to skin things, to, to mount that occasional trophy deer, to deal with velvet. It's a time sensitive, right? Okay. Now, um, the problem comes into when the guy goes to Alaska and shoots a caribou, right? Or goes to Northwest Territory and shoots a caribou. If they don't, if that outfitter does not have somebody in the field to do preservation, then the, I mean like 90 plus percent, you're going to be planning on stripping that velvet. You know, no matter what they say. A lot of times they don't want the guy, to, there's a case where the guy don't want to deal with it, you know, and you get this caribou and velvet. I've been dealing with it all season already. And they go, well, they think it, the guide says, you know, they're in satellite phone me, you know, the clients are talking. He thinks the velvet's pretty good. Like, trust me, it'll be, it'll be full of maggots by the time it gets here. Trust me, it will spoil. Um, they have to be preserved, you know, within a, a pretty short time period, 24 hours, 48 hours maximum. If it's hot, it could be a matter of a few hours. That blood will start to turn and they will start to spoil. Um, so what I recommend in those situations is to simply strip the velvet in the field. 
Um, and then we offer synthetic velvet, which is actually quite phenomenal. Um, again, it is not inexpensive. It, it, I, I think it's pretty spendy. There's only a handful of people that do it well. It's another situation where you have to ship. Does have complications to your caribou. You start cranking a lot of cost into maybe amount an animal that um, 20 years ago the animal was like you know 400s expedition hunt right. You can do a caribou for a few grand. But now you know caribou are right up there with other things, and so um, people aren't shooting two caribou on do yourself hunt anymore. You know, very rare. Um, so when you think about doing synthetic velvet, you have the extra work stripping in the field, and it needs to be done in the field. It's allowed to dry and spoil. We have to pressure wash it off, and it can take hours. And it can actually damage the soft horn trying to get that velvet off. So the time to do it is make that decision in the field immediately, get it off. Um, when we get it here, we can make any repairs to the horn pre-velvet. We split the skull for shipping, and then we ship it to a velvet preservation company. Um, we can match the color, so take good reference photos in the field, try to find good medium light. You know, bright sun is going to make them look lighter, and shadow is going to make the velvet look darker. Try to do that. Um, you can even cut off a swatch out of the palm and just dry it out in the sun and bring it home with you. And we can use it as a color swatch. And the velvet work is pretty incredible. Um, benefit of the synthetic velvet is Real velvet, even preserved real velvet, is still going to be a bug attractant, right? It's an edible to a moth, um, whereas the synthetic is not going to be, you know, there's nothing for that. So there is an added benefit. And um, kind of like doing a replica fish, that synthetic velvet is going to last forever. Real velvet could, could possibly continue to decay a little bit over time. And so even if it's preserved. So there is some real positives to doing synthetic. But you need to be planning on, between shipping and doing the work, you, you need to plan on a couple bucks per inch. So if you have a 400-inch caribou, you know, you could be into it 12 or 1500 bucks to do with all of those extra steps to do that velvet. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, if you know what you, if you're looking at when you get into it, um, or book that hunt two weeks later if you can't. But sometimes it's not an offer. You're on a sheep hunt, you're there during August, you know, that's when you can pack on that caribou, and that's when you do it. Just know this is this is part of, of doing it. Uh, one caveat I would say to velvet, too, I think if you harvest something in velvet, you you really need to keep it in velvet. Um, some guys will say, well, I don't want to spend the money for synthetic. But when you strip velvet, a lot of times, or if a caribou has just recently stripped himself, the the, the real bone is not fully formed. And so it'll take stain differently. So you'll have some areas that when we try to stain the horns in natural brown color, um, some areas of the horn are still more coarse and they take stain differently. So you can end up with horns that look, potentially can look very splotchy. The only time you can really take a velveted animal, usually a caribou, and go basically convert it to a hard horn is if that velvet is very close to being completely shed. And then a lot of times we can simply stain the horns, which is a cheaper alternative. Um, but you got to remember too, if you shoot a caribou early, it's going to have a brown cape. And so he should have velvet horns, right, for the mount. So if you have hard horns with a summer cape, it's almost a weird look 
Mm-hmm. So, um, something about you. Yeah. Man, you, it's like every question, Stuart. I mean, you just, and I'm not saying this to blow smoke, but you can just tell you have decades of experience of like encountering all the scenarios and what ifs. And uh, it's so helpful, man, to have you willing to share the knowledge with, uh, with us. Thank you. Well, and that's why I recommend to, to people, if you're serious about hunting and you are getting after it and um, well, we'll, I'll see clients that maybe business has gone right and their career has gone right and they go, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hunt hard for 10 years, 20 years. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. This is all I want to do. I, I, this is good for my soul. I want to go after it. If you're that person, absolutely mandatory find the tax terms you're compatible with. That should be, you're, you're going to go to a different guide every time or every couple times, right? You might use a guide in Alaska for everything you can get Alaska, but eventually you're going to bounce around in your travels and you have lots of guides and outfitters. But a good tax term, the right fit, can, can be with you for your entire hunting career. They're going to know your preferences. They're going to know your style. When somebody comes into your trophy room, everything's going to look cohesive. It looks like the same vibe. Your, your habitat is cohesive. Your hardwood is cohesive if you're choosing to do it. Um, they know you. You know them. You, you have a rapport where that taxidermist wants to keep you happy because you're a repeat. And so you're going to get that. You're going to get that level of service that maybe going to somebody, for instance, perfect example, people will say, I like to leave my taxidermy where I harvest the animal because I feel like they know the animals in those areas the best. That may be true. It also may not be true. And the thing is, when you leave an animal somewhere like that, they know they're likely never to see you again, right? You have guys that, like South African taxidermists, for example, guys do a trip to South Africa, they get some animals, they're gonna have them done, they're gonna ship them 8,000 miles, they can, they can basically try to extract the amount, most amount of money they can from you. Your recourse, if you're unhappy, is very difficult. You can't ship it back for repair. Um, so you lose some clout with that tax service. If you will develop that local relationship for the time you need it, and if you are that traveling hunter, develop that relationship, those two relationships will carry you through an entire hunting career and I think give you the best outcome for making you happy with your product overall the long term so great well again for listeners uh if you happen to make it all the way through this one and haven't checked out part two um, be sure to go back and listen to the episode we'll leave a link in the show description uh stuart will also leave links to monarch taxidermy your website instagram and all that stuff so folks will definitely be able to get a hold of you all that said, is there anything else you want to leave listeners with as we wrap this up? Uh, get out there and hunt while you can. That's the thing. If you love it, do it because it's not getting easier, not getting cheaper. Um, you're not getting younger. Um, and so if there's something you want to do, now is the time to do it. Um, and I think uh, you won't have regrets, you know, if that's what you want to do, do it now. Yeah. The regret I see is, People look back and say, man, if I just booked that on five years ago, it would save me half. And so um, if it's something you desire, do it and do it right. You know, 
choose up a taxidermist, you know, it doesn't have to be monarch, but just pick what works for you and, um, and get good quality stuff because you, you can't, most of the time you can't fix it, you know, and, and it can be devastating if you get something that's not um, what you want. Well, that's a wrap on this two-part series. If you want to see more from Monarch, get examples of the work that they do, check out their website, which, as Stuart mentioned, will also be updating later this fall to have even more informational resources. And also follow them on Instagram, where they post kind of real-time updates. You can see examples of their work behind the scenes of different works coming together and much more. I'll leave links for that in the show description, as well as the links on how to get a hold of us, leave one of your questions for a future episode, and more. As always, we appreciate you guys tuning in. Hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically, and we'll talk to you soon.